you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville, Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Draw this distinction between the tithe and the sacrifices. The sacrifices to make up for their sin, those had to be perfect. Because to atone for sin, it takes a perfect sacrifice. What he's talking about here is their tithes. A tenth of everything. Every tenth animal that runs through, that's mine. This idea of redeeming it, sometimes, like if the, if the tenth dog that ran through was your favorite dog, you're like, I, mean, I don't want to keep this one, Lord. You could buy it back. You could redeem it. But you had to add money. You had to pay this extra 20%. You had a fifth to its value. The idea was that they wanted to be so careful in setting aside what was the Lord's that if they were going to convert something to its cash value and give the cash instead, they wanted to make sure to not short the Lord. The Lord says, don't short me. If this thing is supposed to be mine, this thing is supposed to be mine. So he's laying down this law and it's this command that he's griping with, rightly, griping with his people about in Malachi. So Leviticus, we see it become law. It's now a command, the command to tithe. Numbers tells us what happens with this 10%. It goes to the Levites for their work at the house of the Lord. Now remember that the Levites were the tribe who was given no possession, no land, no place to call home. Their home was serving at the house of the Lord. And so this 10th went to the Levites, to deal with or to provide for them so they could do their work. And then the Levites, which is this whole tribe of people, tithed a tenth to the priests for their work as priests. So we see that the tithes are going to support the the house of the Lord and the people who are doing the work of the house of the Lord. Deuteronomy 12 tells us that it was also used to celebrate what the Lord had done. And that celebration took place not just with the Levites and the priests, but with everybody who brought offerings. They had this massive meal of celebration, bringing their tithes, bringing their their tenths, so they could celebrate all that the Lord had given them and all that the Lord had done and was doing. And then later on in Deuteronomy 14, part of the tithes are also used and collected for the needy, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens that we hear so much about going through the Old Testament. Look, God cares about those folks. God cares about those who can't take care of themselves. God cares about those who are disadvantaged. And part of his plan for dealing with them is his people. And so we get to Malachi and God's reminding them all, you aren't living up to your end of the deal. They're not obeying his commands. And then he reminds them that when you don't obey God's commands, well, you don't just get off the hook. Verse nine, he says, you are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. There's always a consequence for disobeying God. And the consequence is never limited to the person who does the disobeying. Never, ever. It is unlikely that literally every one of God's people had forgotten or refused to give what they were supposed to give. But it was a systemic problem with systemic consequences. And we see the same thing true in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our denomination, and in the world around us. There's this curse. There's consequences. Well, if what they were supposed to do was set forth in the law, then probably the curse is set forth in the law. So let's 
Look at Leviticus 26. I love this so much. You guys, I'm a lawyer, so I like the law part. Not actually the Levitical law part. That's kind of boring. But the way, when you see how God puts it all together, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. So, uh, you get, so Leviticus 26, again, he's, this is God laying down kind of this, this law, this covenant between him and his people. And here, here is, here's the whole thrust of it. Verse 3, 26-3. If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands... I will give you rain at the right time, and the, the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time. You will have plenty of food to eat and live securely in your land. I'll give peace to the land, and you'll lie down with nothing to frighten you. I'll remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred, and a hundred will pursue ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old grain of the previous year, and will clear out the old to make room for the new. I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you will be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. So all this sounds great, right? All we have to do is, all they had to do, was follow his statutes and faithfully observe his commands and he was gonna take care of everything else. The life of their dreams, security, prosperity, enough to eat, no worries about anything. They'd be able to sleep peacefully, but... Verse 14, if you do not obey me and observe all these commands, if you reject my statutes and despise my ordinances and do not observe all my commands and break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring terror on you. Wasting disease and fever will cause your eyes to fail and your life to ebb away. You will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will turn against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even though no one is pursuing you. So obedience and faithfulness, everything goes great. Disobedience, well, things don't go so great. And really the fun part is the next 20 verses, you keep talking about how, how worse it's going to get when this doesn't work. What do you, verse 18, but if after these things you don't obey me, it gets worse. And he keeps doing that for the next 20 verses until he reminds them that at some point it will get so bad that they will turn back to him. And when they do, he'll remember his covenant. And that's kind of what he's calling them to here in Malachi. He's saying, look, you haven't done the thing I told you to do. I told you, bring the tithes. You didn't do it. And he's reminding them what the consequences for not obeying are. Deuteronomy 28 sets out two sets of consequences, a set of blessings for when they obeyed, and a set of curses for when they disobeyed. In Malachi, he's reminding them, you and I have a deal. I think I sometimes, we sometimes can have the sense that God is unfair with us. If I'd known this, I would have done something differently. God, if I'd known that this was going to hurt this badly, I wouldn't have whatever. God, if I'd known that you were going to bring me to this place, I wouldn't have whatever. God's reminding his people here in Malachi that they don't get to say that. All he's doing is exactly what he said he was going to do. He's faithful to keep his word and to keep his promises. And he's, he's reminding them of that through Malachi. And he's reminding them that there's consequences for what they do. 
He's not springing anything new on his people. He's just reminding them of the law. The law that said they either had to be perfect or, or, or marry some perfection with sacrifices. And in exchange for their perfect obedience and their sacrifices, he would protect them and provide for them. What does he want from them now in Malachi? He wants them to obey. Verse 10, 11, and 12. He says, Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. By the way, he's not really challenging them to test him. That's his way of saying, you know I've made this promise. I've already promised to do this. You know I keep my promises. So if you'll just do what I told you to do, I'll do what I said I was going to do. And all those blessings we read in Leviticus come back. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. What does God want from them? He wants them to obey so he can do what he has said he would do. He wants them to return and operate within the covenant because in the covenant, he gets their obedience. They get his provision and protection. And what's kind of implied here is that he gets glory for all of it. This concept of the land being delightful is that not only are they delighting in what he's done and what he's given them, but the the nations around are able to see and identify their God is good and their God is strong because he's provided this peace and this prosperity for them. God's message here in Malachi is pretty simple. Hey, I told you 10%, I want my 10%. Nobody really wants to talk about money. Is God really talking about money here? Well, the answer is literally yes, right? That was the command. God had commanded, I want my tithe, and they were disobedient. God cares about what his people give. He cared about what the Hebrew people gave. He cares about what we give. And if God cares what they gave, enough that he was willing to threaten them this way, If God cares what we give, then we should ask the question, what are we supposed to give? Well, okay, if we're under the law, this old system of of pleasing God, you had to give your tithes, right? So that's easy, 10%. Well, not so much. That was was the tithe part of it. The tithe part of it was your 10%. Then you had your other festival offerings you were supposed to bring and feast offerings you were supposed to bring. And then you had to bring your temple sacrifices for all the bad things you did. So the best estimate, I don't know who calculated this or how, but the estimate that I saw said that the average family back then, 23% of everything that came in ended up at the temple if they were obedient. That feels kind of like a tax, right? I thought about that as I was working through this this week. I was like, man, this feels like a tax. And here's the thing. It always feels like a tax when it's a thing you don't want to do. It never feels like a tax when you're paying for something you've loved, that you love and you've given your life for. That was kind of the problem that, that the Hebrews were having here, is that they saw it as this burden, not this thing that they got to participate in, not this thing that they had built their lives around with this covenant with the Lord, not this thing that was a joy to them. So under the law, if, if the proper family was following it, or I'm sorry, if the family was following it properly, 23-ish percent, but we're not under the law. Thank God, right? We live under grace. This old covenant, this old law system that says you have to be perfect 
in order to please God. And if you fail in your perfection, you have to bring sacrifices, but you're going to fail in knowing that you're not perfect, and you're going to fail in bringing the sacrifices, so you're never really going to be right. And even when you are, he'll provide his provision and his protection, but the second that you stop being right, there's the potential that it'll go away. That's a nightmare. And God knows that, which is why he gave us this covenant of grace through Jesus, where, where he deals with both sides of the covenant. It's not our side and your side. It's the side where Jesus says, I will pay what we owe. And God says, well, I'll, you know, I'm in on that, but I'll still give you everything, not just provision and protection, but everything that he has. We're under grace, and, and we have, I have this concept sometimes that grace is less demanding than the law. There's books and books of the Bible about law and all these rules and all these regulations that I can't remember, that I can't understand, and that I really don't even want to read through because it takes too long and I don't understand it. Even by the time I'm done, it's gone. But grace is so much more simple. It's true. But grace demands far more than the law, which is a weird way to think about it. But think about what Jesus said. The law says don't murder. Jesus said, yeah, but you also break that if you hate somebody. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus said, well, it's true, but you also break that if you lust. Grace demands so much more than the law because we're given so much more and because Jesus gave us everything. So um, don't think, though, that grace is, is based on our works or anything we can do. Let's look at what the Bible says about it in Matthew 16. I have so many tabs, y'all, I don't even know which one's which. All right, Matthew 16, 24. So this is, this, is, this is Jesus talking about what we're supposed to give. Jesus said to his disciples, 16, 24, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. The old covenant is that 10% or 23%, whatever it was. The new covenant, he wants everything you've got. Well, if, if God wants everything I've got, how am I gonna live? How do I make that work? Am I supposed to empty my bank account? No. You still have to live. Go to 2 Corinthians 9. We're going to read 6 through 15. Paul had been talking to the Corinthian church about giving, about being generous in their giving, about supporting the work of the ministry. And he says in verse 6, this is the point. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for the food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be rich in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for this, for his indescribable gift. That's a lot wrapped up to talk about how we're supposed to give. The key thing in the middle of it is he says, it's between you and the Lord. You don't live under the Old Testament covenant, the old covenant, the covenant of the law that says, here's a very clear number. Every 10th animal that goes under your rod, that's the Lord's. Every 10th dollar that comes in, that's the Lord's. Every 10th plant that you grow in the yard, that's the Lord's. The deal that the Lord makes with us now is we get eternal life and intimacy with God, the God of all creation, in exchange for everything that we have. When you make that deal, when you say, I will follow Jesus, he gets it all. So the question then is, what do we do with it while we're holding on to something that is already his? And Paul's telling us, why don't you talk with him about it? Don't feel any compulsion. No one gets to tell you how much you have to give. You're not gonna hear any of us stand up here and say, this is what you should give. This is what the Bible says about how you should give. What the Bible says about how a New Testament giver, that's us, gives is however you've decided in your heart. Not reluctantly, or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. How should you give? How should I give? Cheerfully. How much should you give? How much should I give? Whatever the Lord tells you. There's no limit on it because it's all his. Whatever you give is between you and God and you should give it cheerfully. You should also give it mindfully though, which I think is interesting. We were talking about this, Red and I were talking about this, and some other folks may have been around. Uh, you all generally have been incredibly faithful, and, and our budget meetings every year have been a joy because what we see is that through you guys, God has blessed again and again and again. We keep setting budgets, and you guys keep giving beyond what we set for the budget. We've never had to turn anybody down who's needed money for anything that we want to do as Red Hill because you guys, uh, the Lord through you guys, have provided, and we're thankful for that. Um, but one of the things that we wonder about, because Ray and I were talking candidly, just it's happened to both of us, is that we have this auto pay thing set up. And so one of the things that the Lord has commanded us to do is give cheerfully, to give mindfully, and to kind of celebrate, you go back to the Old Testament concept of the celebratory meal they would have as they gave, celebrating what the Lord had done. Sometimes I think we sin and that we don't give the Lord what's his. Sometimes I think we sin and that we just do it without thinking about it. It auto goes out of our account. We don't take that moment to stop and celebrate what the Lord's done or that he's even enabled us to give, that he's given us something that we can give back from. Um, and so let me just encourage you today that if you're on auto pay, stay on auto pay, I don't care. But when you get that email that says, hey, your money showed up, which I think Red Hill sends out, I don't know how, I get an email. I don't know if it comes from the bank or Red Hill, I don't know. I don't pay attention. I have to work on that, right? But take that opportunity as your money goes out, if your money goes out, or if you put it in the box, or if you write a check, or you do a one-time gift in the app, whatever you guys decide to do, that's between you and the Lord. He's commanded you to give. How much is up to you and him? But as you do it, do it cheerfully and do it mindfully, worshiping as you give, celebrating what he's done in you and through you, that you can do that thing, that you can give that gift. What happens when you give money here? Well, it goes to support the work of the church, the work of the kingdom. Um, we pay our staff. <laughs> we pay for this building and everything that's in it. 
We fund programs that let us do things like give Bibles away on campus and have an amazing collegiate uh, experience. Marcus is going to talk in a little bit about what happened here yesterday. We pass on a ton of money. Uh, Raiden today is preaching at one of the church plants that we support, that we give money to. There's multiple of those. And then your money, if you give it here, goes to plant churches around the world, North America and around the world. And it goes for disaster relief around the world. It goes for missionaries around the world. It goes to equip and educate pastors and staff around the world. We want to be faithful with the money that you give. And I want you to know where the money that you give is going if you choose to give here. Remember, God's commanded you to give. In the New Testament, the the best model for giving, it's not the only model prescribed, by the way, but the, the, the model that is most commented on and that is most complimented is giving to the local body. If this is your local body, you should give here. If you are a member of this church, you have covenanted to give here. God takes his covenant seriously. God takes our covenant seriously. You should give and you should give here if this is your church. Now, if this is not your church, that's okay. If this is not your church, you should find a church or go to your church and give there. But God's commanded you to give. What happens to us when we give? Well, God provides and protects. And Matthew 6, in uh, verses 25 through 34. There's a lot in Matthew 6 about... uh, giving, about money, about how we handle ourselves. Matthew 6, 25, this is Jesus talking. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Man, isn't that what we do with our money? We worry it, right? What am I going to do? Do I have enough? When's it going to run out? What am I going to do with it? What if I do this thing with it? And then five minutes later, this other thing comes up and I should have done that with it. He says, don't worry about your life, what what you will eat or what you will drink. It's a weird thing to think about in the context of Edwardsville. Most of us don't think about that, don't have to think about that, but around the world and historically that hasn't been true. People don't know where the next meal is coming from. What Jesus is saying is don't worry about it. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear, your clothes don't matter. Isn't life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? That's rhetorical, by the way, you are. Don't get confused in some of the stuff that's going on in the world. You are the crown jewel of his eye, right? You are worth more than them. Can any one of you add a moment to your lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow... Won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or how will we pay our mortgage or how do we take care of the car? Is my house big enough? Is my car new enough? I don't have the latest clothes. For the Gentiles eagerly, that's the lost people, eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worry of its own. What he's saying is if we're faithful to put the kingdom first, he will take care of us. We have this concept in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon and in America generally that it's up to us 
my success depends on me, whether my family is thought of well depends on me and what I can do. And, and in most ways, that stuff boils down to money. Now, I don't think God's calling us, most of us probably, to empty our bank accounts and get to the point where I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I gave everything today. I don't know how I'm eating tomorrow. If you did that in sincere faith, I think he'd take care of you, by the way. But he's made us stewards. He's given us stewardship. And he's told us to rightly handle what he's given us. Really, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's asked you to rightly handle what is his. He's saying, if you'll put the kingdom first, I'll take care of all your needs. And the thing is, I think we get to test him in that. We struggle, sometimes we suffer. Sometimes we think we're suffering, but we're not. And one of the things, go to your GCs this week, y'all. One of the things I wanna, that I know will happen if you go to your GC is that you're gonna hear stories of people who, who gave first to the kingdom and God took care of them. Now this is not the same, by the way, as the prosperity gospel, this thing that we preach against that isn't really any gospel at all. This thing that says, if you'll just give enough, then God will love you enough and give you nice things or cool things. Here's the deal. Um, I, man, I talk about this, sorry, Drew. I talk about this every time I preach. I talk about going to the gym, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's two reasons I talk about it so much, probably. One is I really don't like it. I'm not a cheerful lifter. Okay, I don't, I don't like it. Two, two is because it's one of the very few areas of my life where I've had sustained discipline and seen the results. But let me tell you, I'm 45 years old. The reason I go to the gym now is not the reason I would have gone to the gym 22 years ago. Young Stephen didn't go to the gym, but if he'd have gone to the gym, it would have been so he caught somebody's eye, so he was in shape, whatever. It was going to the gym for the benefits of whatever might come next. Now I go to the gym because I've made a covenant to be present, healthy, and able to participate in the covenant. I don't go to the gym to try and win her love. I go to the gym because I love her. That's the kind of giving that we're called to in the New Testament. It's not this kind of go give, go do the thing so that God will look at you and go, oh, what a wonderful young man or woman. The reason we give, <laughs> you guys are laughing, that was good. The reason we give is because he's given it all to us, not just provision and protection, but eternal life, this concept of heaven and abundant life. We don't all get that right now, right? Here's the deal we'll talk in modern terms that the Bible is very clear. If you're living your best life now, that's it for you. For anybody who's a follower of Jesus, your best life cannot be now. That doesn't mean you don't get to have nice things. It doesn't mean you don't get to enjoy life. It doesn't mean you have to punish yourself, beat yourself up or whatever. But this insane concept of living your best life now isn't here. It's not what the Lord has for you. What he has for you is what he had for himself, a life of service. God doesn't need your money. He didn't need their tithes either. He owns all of it. If nobody had brought anything and those Levites and priests didn't know where they were going to eat, what they were going to eat, 
however many years ago that was, 2,500, he could have given them Chick-fil-A. 2,500 years ago, he could have brought up those delicious chicken sandwiches and waffle fries and even lovely Diet Coke, right? He could do whatever, and he, the truth is, he can do whatever he's going to do, whether you give a dime or don't give a dime. The issue isn't about the money. Don't hear me saying God needs your money. God doesn't need anything from you or from me. The issue always is our hearts. That's what he was after with the Israelites. He's talking to them in Malachi, and that's what he's after with us. Disobedience is a sign of a heart that is not near to the Lord. The thing that he wanted in the old covenant and the thing that he wants in this new covenant through Jesus is intimacy with you. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. And a heart that is consistently rebellious is not near to the Lord. At Red Hill, we talk about marks of a disciple. What does a disciple look like? One of the marks of a disciple is a warm and growing affection for Jesus. You're not going to have a warm and growing affection for Jesus at the same time that you are regularly disobeying him. One of the marks of a disciple is a life oriented around the love and mission of God. Back to Matthew 6, verse 24. This is Jesus again. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's the deal. Nobody really serves money. Money is just a, a fun way to say we're serving ourselves. You can't serve God and yourself. It can't be all about you if it's also all about him. And if it's all about him, it's not all about you. That's what he's calling us here to, calling us to here. A little bit earlier in Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, he says this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look what he said throughout the Bible. The entire Bible is a story about God gaining intimacy with his people. What he wants is intimacy with you. He loves you. He wants you to love him and be intimate with him. One of the great indicators for where your heart is, whether your heart and your life are built around the mission and the gospel and the love of God is your checkbook. I mean, just for funds, you guys want to bring your checkbooks and your calendars in next week? We'll just all lay them out and compare. No, that's terrifying. Some of you are uncomfortable right now because we're talking about money. You feel pressured or guilty or shame. I don't know what you feel, but in a room this size with this many people, some of you are feeling those things. Um, there are churches, we're not one of them, I don't think we will be, but there are churches that post, I know there's at least one, every week on the front door, a list of who gave the week before and how much as a way of mutual accountability that terrifies some of you. Why? We're not going to do that. I don't think ever. I hope not ever. There's not a, I don't know there's a good reason to do that. Uh, our, our money boss over here is saying no. But isn't that the attitude we have? We hear something like that and we go, like there is this piece of, of this concept of giving to the Lord that we keep I don't know if secret's the right word, but we're so private about it. And look, the truth is, I don't care what you give. My job isn't to tell you what to give. 
Neither is Raiden's job, neither is Josh's job or Carrie's or anybody else's. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. The question is, have you had that conversation? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you talked to him about what he wants you to give? Have you talked to him lately about what he wants you to give? Or is it said on auto pay? Maybe you forgot. That's okay. But we should regularly check in on what it is he wants us to give. And by the way, there's plenty to give that's not money. We need your money. Josh, Josh wants me to say it louder for the people in the back. It's him. He's in the back. Um, there's plenty to give that's not money. Look, God doesn't need your money. Red Hill does, right? Raiden's family does. We got more than just Raiden that are paid staff. They need, they need some money. We would like it to be yours, faithfully given under the leading of the Holy Spirit. If it's not, he'll take care of them some other way. But he's commanded you to give, but not just money. Remember that thing, the trade we make for intimacy with the Lord and all of eternity is our entire lives. Everything you have is his. And that's your money, that's your time, it's your talent, it's your ability, it's the things you do well naturally and the things you're willing to do that you don't like to do, all of that is his. And I will tell you that while we very much appreciate the money and this building that we're in, we don't have to roam around anymore, the most significant contributions that are made here are not financial. See, the Lord's going after these guys in Malachi because they've taken something that they were supposed to give to him and they've kept it for themselves. We do the same thing all the time and it's not always money. Here's the problem with that. When you take this thing that is supposed to be God's, you say, this is, this is God's, I'm going to take it. You put yourself in the position of God. And the thing that's true about me, that's true about every one of you, every one of you that I know and every one of you that I don't know is that you are awful at being God. You're lacking knowledge, you're lacking power, and you're lacking character. This concept of the curse that he's talking about in, in Malachi, you're under this curse because you're disobedient. And it's not that God's out there particularly picking on them because they're not giving money, and so they're not giving enough, he's cursing them. The curse is... It, if what you want is you as God, what you get is you as God. Look at Adam and Eve. That's the kind of the deal the devil made with them, right? You can be like God. You can take this thing that's exclusive for him and you can possess it. So they step onto the throne. Well, they got themselves as God. The story of Israel again and again and again and again and again in the story of my life and your life is that we take things that ought to be God's, we step onto the throne and say, I'll handle this instead. And the curse is then that we get us as God. What we don't get is his provision, his protection, his power. You know who actually should have been God? God. Philippians 2, we quote this a lot. Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Quick time out if you're new to this. Jesus was God entirely and fully. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, God in flesh, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Quick time out. We think about that because we all know the story of Jesus in some context. And we're like, yeah, yeah, death on a cross. We know it. It was really bad. 
That was the worst kind of way you could die back then because it wasn't just painful, but it said something about who you are as a person. That was for the scum. So this isn't just Jesus dying a death. It's him dying an ignoble death, a death that was below him to the extent any death wasn't. He says, for this reason, because Jesus humbled himself, because he gave his life as a servant, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, pay attention here, y'all. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, you are in every. Your knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. You will recognize him as God. It's just a matter of when. It's where God's going in Malachi again and again and again. He's asking, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Am I your God or are you your God? Fair questions to ask when it comes to our money or anything else. You can't give enough to please God. You can't give enough to be right with God. There's only two paths to being right with God. One is to be perfect. Good luck. The other is to bow your knee and confess that Jesus is Lord and follow him, to walk in the way of Jesus and rely on his holiness. If you try and do it on your own, you're starting from behind. You're gonna play catch up for all of your life. You'll never get there. And in the end, it's gonna cost you everything. But you might get your best life now. But if you'll trade everything you have now for who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the promise that he's gonna give you is that your best life is yet to come. It starts now and goes for all of eternity but you got to give up everything. So time to wrap up. Pretty clear text to walk through. I like that. I like when Raiden lets me have the, the easy ones to walk through. God's saying, look, I've, I've made a command and you aren't obeying it and there's consequences. And they say, are we really? What do we do? And his, his response to them is the same as his response would be to you whether it's about giving or anything else. Return to me. Repent. Stop walking the way you want to go and turn and walk back to who I am and what I've called you to. Are you robbing God? So it's response time, right? We walk into our response time and it's easy just to go, okay, response time. I know what that means. A little bit of quiet time. They play some music. Then I stand up and I walk through the line. I eat the stuff. And then three more songs and I'm out of here. All that's true. But it's not response time unless you actually respond to who he is and what he's doing in your life. Here's what I want you to think about today and over the coming days. By the way, you know, one of the comforting things for standing up here, uh, anybody who's, who's preached here, we always feel pressure to get it right, to not screw up, to not put you guys to sleep. But the funny thing that we remind each other regularly is nobody knows what happened three weeks ago. You might remember the sermon last week. Nobody remembers the sermon three weeks ago, which takes the pressure off me, but it puts it on you. Because the truth is the way God's wired us and the way he lets us get through life is he gives us moments to act. And then those moments pass. Three weeks from now, you're not gonna remember this sermon which is good for you and good for me. But that means if you're going to respond to what he's saying now, now's the time. 
today, this week, because next Sunday, another sermon comes. And over the course of the week, you're going to read other things and see other things, and this is going to fade. And that's okay. We're not meant to remember everyone ever. That would be impossible. But if you're going to actually respond, now's the time. Ask yourself these questions. Are you robbing God? By the way, eh, don't, ask, don't ask yourself these questions. You don't know the answer. Ask God these questions. Are you robbing him? And if so, of what? He may give you an answer and then he'll say, return to me. Best way out for the Hebrews and Malachi and for us now is a quick return to who he wants us to be. A quick return to the covenant. Are you robbing God? Will you rob God? That was his question. When it comes to money or anything else, what should you give and how much? Don't ask me. Ask him. He'll give you an answer. Sometimes it's vague. Sometimes it's very specific. It's between you and him. You got to figure it out. But here's the thing. If you're not giving what you're supposed to give, his answer is still going to be the same. Return to me. This whole concept of return, though, means you've been there in the first place. Some of you have not bowed your knee to Jesus. Some of you have not acknowledged that he is Lord, that he died for you, that he was raised from the dead so that you can have eternal life beginning right now. If you haven't done that, (laughs) you should be asking God during this time, how do I return to you? How do I turn to you? I believe he'll answer that prayer if you're sincere in praying it. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You don't know much about Jesus. You don't know what it means to follow him. You're not even sure he's real. Um, This idea of repentance doesn't make any sense. None of this makes much sense. That's okay. You're in the Bible too. It says you can't understand it until he lets you understand it. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you don't know what any of these words mean. You're not even sure who Jesus is or how to get to him in the first place. Would you tell him that? Just think it in your head. I don't know who you are. I'm not sure that you are. I need you to show me. I need you to let me know how to get there. He'll be faithful to answer that prayer. Y'all, you're gonna bow your knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Sooner is better than later. And for those of us that have already done that, man, how how easy is it to get up? Drew makes me do lunges. I hate lunges. But I always get up. How easy is it to get up to go from being on our knees, confessing Jesus to off to the next shiny thing. Return, repent. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful that, um, I'm thankful this all depends on you, that you made the covenant and you are entirely capable and willing and able to keep it. And I pray that you do that. For every one of us, Lord, help us to return to you. Help us to know what it is you want us to do. Give us the courage to do it. Help us to understand, because we don't, we don't rightly understand who you are. And we don't understand always what you want from us or how to do what you want from us. And Lord, we need you to help us. So help us, please, make our hearts sensitive to your spirit, to your word. Show us how it is you want us to live. And then give us the courage to do it. The idea of testing you sounds terrifying, but what we know is that when we ask you to do the things that you've promised to do, you always do the things you promised to do. And you've promised to give us righteousness and everything else if we will just seek you.
So help us to seek you, help us to trust you. Thank you for providing, Lord. We know that no matter how much we give or don't give, you own it all. You can have and will provide everything we need. And the thing we needed most was Jesus. And so we thank you for that. And we celebrate that together. We celebrate that now as we think and as we ask you questions, and as we rely on the fact that you're interested in us and that you want intimacy with us, which means when we ask you questions, you engage with us. I'm thankful for that, Lord. And I'm thankful that in a minute we get to, we get to celebrate and we get to have this little tiny meal together celebrating what you've done. That's a celebration. It's not just a thing we have to do so we can go home. So help with that, Lord. Help us to have our hearts right in that. And help us as we sing, Lord, to be singing together, lifting our voices together to celebrate who you are. Thanks, Lord, and I pray that you'd work in us. Amen. All right, you know what's coming next, right? Ask the Lord these questions. What am I supposed to give? How am I robbing you? How do I return to you? How do I get to you in the first place? Spend some time with him. When you're ready, you can come and take communion. This is a, a different picture of a celebratory meal, right? This is for something that this is for those who have already believed in Jesus, who have trusted him. It's a, a tiny picture of a celebration of his broken body and blood for us. So as you eat it, don't just dip it and chuck it. <laughs> Celebrate in your heart, in your spirit. God loves a cheerful giver and he loves a cheerful eater. I'm better at that than I am being a cheerful lifter. And in a minute, we're gonna sing, we're gonna sing. And it's not just singing, y'all. This is our chance to, with our voices, encourage each other and say things that are true about God. So let me encourage you to dive all the way into that. Love y'all. When you're ready, come and eat. That's me. That was not the Holy Spirit. Sorry.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for connection. Filling out this online part will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's word together.